0: As I begin this morning, I want to share a story of a pastor who really enjoyed uh, golfing. And so he woke up one Sunday morning, it was an early spring morning, it had been a really frigid, cold, freezing winter, and he realized it was an exceptionally beautiful day for playing golf. And so he woke up and he decided he was going to call his associate pastor, say that he was feeling really sick, and convinced his associate pastor to preach a last minute sermon for him. After he hangs up the phone, he gets ready, he heads out to a golf course 45 miles away from the church so that he would ensure nobody from the community would see him and recognize it. And so as he's setting up on the first tee, after all, it was a very beautiful Sunday morning, everyone is going to be in church, and at about this time, St. Peter up in heaven looks over to the Lord while he sees the pastor getting ready to play this round of golf all by himself, and he exclaims to him, "Uh, you're not going to let him get away with this, are you? At this point, just as these words come out of Saint Peter's mouth, the pastor hits the ball, and this miraculous gust of wind comes out of nowhere. It travels 375 yards in the air, bounces a six feet in front of the pin, and rolls right into the pin for a massive hole in one—the first hole in one that this pastor had ever hit. After seeing this, Saint Peter again is astonished and looks at the Lord and said, "Why would you do that?" To which the Lord responds to him and smiles by saying. Who is he going to tell? <laughs> now, what's funny about that story is that if you ever played golf, it's pretty really hard, pretty much impossible to get a hole in one. And if you get a hole in one and, and if nobody's there to see it, and if you were to say, hey, I did it by myself, no one would believe you. And on top of that, it's a Sunday morning and he's not supposed to be there. So he hits a hole in one, but no one would ever believe him, nor could he actually tell anyone about it, right? Did it actually happen? He can't say anything at all. And I share that story because this Sunday we're kicking off our Christmas series and we're talking about this idea of, is Christmas unbelievable? Uh, There's a little short book by Rebecca Rebecca McLaughlin called, Is Christmas Unbelievable? It's four chapters, it's 55 pages, but they're really small, so they're simple, easy to read. We actually have just five of these at our Connect table today. Amazon was really gracious and decided to delay the shipment, but still give me five of them. And so today we're going to have a bunch more. So for the rest of the series, we only have five today, but we encourage you to pick one up. The rest of the series, we'll have a lot more out in the lobby Five, Four topics, and we're going to hit on all these topics in our sermon series uh, over Christmas or over these next few weeks. And the first question we're asking is this. Was Jesus a real person? Was Jesus a real person? It's a question that you get from time to time. You know, the media likes to find some random person and kind of has this new claim every Christmas season that he didn't actually exist. And so when it comes to following Jesus, it's a legitimate question to ask. This was 2,000 years ago. None of us saw it. Did he actually exist. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Now, what's interesting is that sometimes you might hear people ask or claim that Jesus never existed. Um, the reality is that's actually, was he a real person is not the right question to actually Ask, and, and here's why. The reality is, whatever you might think about Jesus, whatever anyone else might think about Jesus, uh, it is hurled by, he, held by virtually every scholar, Christian or not, historian, that this man, there was a man named Jesus who actually existed about 2,000 years ago in Rome. And they would actually say it's quite naive or ignorant. And I don't mean that in the negative sense. I mean it in just like you don't know. It's quite ignorant to assume he did it. And what you might not know is that there are a number of sources outside of the Gospels, outside of the New Testament, that attest to a man named Jesus that he actually existed. Uh, one was written in 80, uh, AD 93 by a Jewish historian named Josephus, who wrote that in 62 A.D., about three months after Jesus' or three decades after Jesus' death, um, that he wrote that a Jewish high priest uh, had a man named James, the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ, and certain others sown. So the high priest at the time in 62 AD had James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote the the book of James in the New Testament, and a couple of other people stoned. Uh, In the early 2nd century, so the early 100s, there was another Roman historian named Cornelius Tacitus, and he reported how uh, the emperor Nero in 64 AD uh, blamed the great fire in Rome on a class of men loathed for their vices whom the crowd called Christians. And then Tacitus goes on to explain who these Christians were. It'll be on the screen. He writes this. Christus, the founder of the names, talking about Jesus, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. And the pernicious superstition was checked for a moment, only to break out once more, not merely in Judea, the home of the disease, but in Rome itself, where all things horrible or shameful in the world, uh, world collect and become fashionable. So it said there was this movement by this man named Christus, by, by this guy who people claim was the Christ. They thought it was going to be over when they killed the man, but then it spread. And then kind of mockingly, he talks about how Rome is the center of all sinful and moral uh, immorality. Like we might say Las Vegas, for example. So he's like, of course, people in Rome would believe that because they don't have any morals about them. In fact, Pliny the Younger, who was a Roman governor in what we would call modern-day Turkey between 109 and 111, wrote a letter to the emperor of Rome at the time asking for advice on how to persecute Christians and to get them to start re-worshiping Roman gods. And so uh, he wanted to make them worship Roman gods, to offer them praise and not just the Christ. And, and then he, they realized that some who had confessed, be previously being Christians, often under duress. And so not, this didn't happen everywhere, but there were certain pockets of places where they would take Christians, uh, essentially make them uh, recant or try to make them recant. And they had found, he said they had found that they would meet once a week once a week, early in the morning on a certain day of the week, and they would sing, sing a hymn to Christ as to a God. This is what he found out the Christians were doing. They were worshiping this Messiah, this guy, at least they claimed to be the Messiah. And so, unlike most of their religious contemporaries, the problem with Christianity is not that they worship Jesus. Uh, the problem is that they didn't think he was one of many. They thought he was the one of one, that he was the only true God. And this was really problematic in the Roman Empire, where civic religion was huge. And so, it's not that everyone was like super uh, holy or super trying to follow all the pagan gods, even if you didn't really care. Everything in this in the Roman Empire revolved around offering sacrifices and doing things for the regional gods and the gods of Rome in general. And the Christians would not do that in fact they were viewed as anarchist in many ways from the people of rome and certainly the government because they were claiming that jesus was the christ the true king and not the emperor now these type of historical documents that we still have not to mention all the ones that didn't survive as of course most didn't outside the bible show us that jesus this man named jesus was a jewish leader in the early first century, that he claimed to be the Christ because everyone was worshiping him as if he was the Savior, and that he was executed by the Romans between 26 and 36 AD because this is when Pilate was in charge of the region where Jesus was crucified, and that he was worshiped by his followers as if he he were some sort of God. In other words, the question is not really, was Jesus a real person? The better question is this. The question is not whether Jesus was real, but whether he is God. That's really what we're talking about here. It's not that he, that he exists, but that he do the things that he claimed to do. Was he actually God? And so what I want to do this morning is I want to do one of my favorite Christmas traditions around New City Church. And I want to fix the Christmas story of Jesus' birth to show us whether or not Jesus actually existed. And we're gonna focus our time this morning on his birth. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter two. Uh, we're gonna be in three different places this morning. And so there'll be a page number on each time we do that. Um, we, love the Bi- we, we love the Bible here at New City Church, not because we worship the Bible, but because it shows us Jesus whom we worship. And so we're gonna read some text. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time explaining it. I'm just gonna read these passages. And what we're gonna begin by doing is making sure the Christmas story, the nativity scene that we all like to see and decorate every year, we're gonna see what it actually would have looked like look like when the night that Jesus was born. And so in Luke chapter two, it's one of the two accounts of Jesus' birth in the gospels. The other is the gospel of Matthew, which we'll read in a second. The first one is Luke chapter two, starts out by saying this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Cerenus was governing Syria. So everyone went to, the re- went to be registered, each to his own town, or where his family was from. That's where you would go to be registered in the census. Verse 4, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family line of David to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And so Mary and Joseph are going to Joseph's hometown. They are engaged at this point, uh, And so legally she's going to become a part of his family. And there are a couple of interesting things I want to point out as we see what actually happened uh, this first Christmas night. First in verse six, you'll notice this. It says, while they were there, the time for her came to give birth. Now what we typically assume happened, or at least we kind of and the stories like to see, is that Mary and Joseph, or she's super pregnant. They get there just in time. They go to the local hotel. There's no place for them. And so they point him to a stable and she has birth. And it's like last minute, everything's great. What it actually says is that they were there for a while and then the time for her to give birth came. In fact, you would not travel a multiple day journey while someone was actually about to give birth. And so they would have been there for a while, first of all. They would not have arrived the day that Jesus was born. The second thing we need to understand is that in the ancient Middle Eastern culture, uh, hospitality was everything. You didn't have typically like hotels and all the things that we have nowadays. And so whenever you would travel, you would be really dependent on the generosity and hospitality of others to take you in. And so you would also be generous and hospitable to other travelers as they would come into town. Now, the second thing to understand is that Bethlehem was an extreme... Extremely small town. There, it is highly unlikely that there was, there was any sort of hotel or any sort of thing like that for travelers to stay in, in in Bethlehem. And the third thing to understand is that Joseph was coming to be near or around his family. Even if they did not approve of Mary being pregnant because she was still, they were still engaged. They certainly would not have thrown them out in the street. and would not have allowed them stay in the house. When it talks about there is no guest room available for them, I appreciate the CSB's translation. Some translations say there was no inn available for them. What, what it's really saying uh, is that the houses were not very large. There was probably more people than normal because they're there to be registered. And the houses that were a little bit bigger and had something like a guest room, typically it would be like on a ladder on like a side area of the house, which would be not a great place for someone to give birth. So even if the houses were big enough to have guest rooms, they might have already been filled or they would not have been a great place to give birth. What's actually happening is that Mary is likely giving birth to Jesus in the kind of the main gathering area of the house. That's what's actually happening. Now, we'll, we'll talk about how there's a manger there and what's going on there. Oftentimes in these ancient cultures, you would bring your animals into the main area of your house if you had some at night, either because it was cold or so sure that they would not be stolen. And so oftentimes you would either have a portable manger or you would literally have mangers built into the side of your house where you could feed the animals when you took them inside. And so uh, to make sure we're understanding what actually looked like, we have a picture. This is my kids play set of a typical manger scene. So we're going to fix this major scene as we understand, was Jesus actually alive? So here's what you got. You've got the stable, you've got the angel, the shepherd, the wise men, all these sort of things. What we see in the first half of this section of Luke chapter two is a couple of things. Number one, they would not have been in a stable. They would not have been in some random place. They would have likely, almost certainly been in a house. And so we can take the stable away. So that would not have been there on Jesus' night when he was birthed. The second thing that would not have been there is that although there were animals around and although the animals sometimes were inside, they certainly would have kicked them out when it was time for Mary to have the baby, certainly because of all the midwives who would not have animals hanging around. And so when Jesus was actually born, we can also say goodbye to the animals. They would not have actually been there when Jesus was born. They would have been outside, fine, but they would not have been like right there, like hanging out right next to baby Jesus. That wouldn't have been a thing that have actually happened. So let's keep reading. Let's keep reading and see what happens next. Let's pick it up in verse eight of Luke chapter two. It says this. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today, in the city of David, a Savior was born for you who is the Messiah the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly, there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying, "Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth to the people He favors." When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened to us, which the Lord has made known to us. And so what you see happening here is that in the same region, somewhere close to Bethlehem, uh, there were some shepherds and the angel came up and showed them It said, hey, the, the baby is born. You need to come see it. Now, we don't exactly know where the shepherds were. They were undoubtedly at least probably a couple hours to get there or perhaps a couple of days. Even if they were able to get there like within 30 minutes, which wouldn't have been a thing, do you think they would be like, we don't know who you are. Come on in. Like just hang, I just gave birth. I don't know who you are. You smell bad. Just hold my baby. That's, that's not what it would have looked like. And so if we want to go back to the picture of where we are with our manger scene, while yes, there certainly were shepherds and everything happening the night Jesus was born, would they have been in the house within a few hours of Jesus' birth? They would not have. And so you can go ahead and take the shepherds out. Uh, if you want a, a, you want a historically accurate main, or, uh, manger scene, the shepherds would not be there. And of course, if the shepherds weren't, weren't there, well, where were the angel, but with the shepherds, which means we can also say goodbye to our little angel. Oh, so sad. <laughs> now you're like, well, finally, at least somebody was there, right? Well, I'm not so sure. Let's keep reading. Matthew chapter 2, it then says this. So in Matthew chapter 2, it talks, it picks up the story after Jesus was born. It says this in verse 1, Matthew chapter 2. Again, you can p- turn to page 855 if you've got one of those black ones in front of you. Here's what Matthew then says about the birth of Jesus in verse 1. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, "Where Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw, saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. Now, does it say the night that Jesus was born? It does not. It says after. Jesus was born. And on top of that, they did not travel to Bethlehem. They first traveled to Jerusalem. Now, these wise men or these astrologers would have been in the Babylonian area, which would have been probably at least a month. Give or take a week or two to actually get to Jerusalem, and then they would have to go to Bethlehem, and so they and, and so they wouldn't have been there the night Jesus was born. Number one, number two, they also certainly would not have traveled alone. You didn't travel long distances in a small group. There would have been a, a, a large group of people, not necessarily all going to the same place. But they would, they would tra- There would have been multiple of them traveling to see what this Jesus, what this Messiah thing might be all about. Now the question is, why is there only three wise men? We'll get to that in a second. But also it's helpful to know that why would they even come if they're not really Jewish people, like or Israelites, like why are they even like interested in what's going on here? Uh, we do know that these men would have had some familiarity with the Old Testament prophecies because there would have been exiled Jews who resettled in Babylon, and so they would have been somewhat familiar with what was going on. And so again, we'll read this in verse 3. Here's what happens when they go to Jerusalem. It says, when King Herod heard this, which is, he was essentially like the governor of this Roman province where Jerusalem and Judea and Bethlehem were all located, it says, when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. And Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what, the, what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. So he hears that these people are coming and say, like, like the Messiah is here. He's, like, not sure what's going on. And so he asks some of his priests, like, Whenever the Messiah comes, where is he supposed to be born? Like, oh yeah, I guess he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And so, it was, and so he was not happy about this. Now, it was assumed, why? Because that Jesus would, would, would eventually establish a earthly rule and reign. This is why uh, King Herod eventually uh, actually, actually wanted to kill all the babies born in Bethlehem in a two-year period after he finds out about Jesus, because he does not want his successor, who he assumes to be a successor, to take over for him. This is why when Jesus was arrested and on trial with Pilate before his crucifixion, when he says that my kingdom is not of this world, it makes not a lot of sense because you would assume that if God is going to come and redeem a people, how else would you do this but by force? Especially if you were the Israelites who have been for the last couple hundred years been overtaken and run by different foreign nations, you would be looking forward for someone to physically deliver you. And so King Herod is actually worried about this. And so he then says this in verse seven. Once he finds out what's going on, it says, then Herod secretly summoned the wise men And asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I can too go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way and there it was, the star that they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And falling to their knees, they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. And so then after a while, when they don't come back, Herod gets kind of freaked out. And then he says it's somehow been within, within about at least two years. He wants all babies in the Bethlehem region, all the boys in the Bethlehem region, killed. And so uh, this is also why you get this idea of the three wise men, because there are three gifts. But again, it doesn't actually say. And so if we go back to our picture for a moment, our our manger scene, what it actually looked like. uh, In reality, there would not have been three. There probably would have been more. And even if they weren't technically like all wise men and astrologers, they would have had a large group that traveled with them. And so if you really want a a historically accurate manger scene, it might have actually looked like this. There might have been a lot, there would have been a lot of them, okay? They would have all kind of been like, what's going on here? But of course we know they weren't actually there, so it really would have looked like this. I actually have a pastor friend who uh, accurately, every year in his house, he, he does an accurate manger scene where he puts the manger, Jesus and Joseph, right here. He puts the shepherds and angel like, on another side table, and he puts the wise men on another side table. like They were all there. They just weren't all here. And so if you want a historically accurate manger scene, uh, because it wasn't in a stable, it would look like this. Of course, our problem is that Jesus, Mary, and Joseph weren't white. <laughs> and so really, it would have looked like this. And so there we go. Uh, our kids' playset has a white baby Jesus, which is not what it actually looked like. So here you go. Here's your historical major scene. If you don't have any decorations for Christmas, you can now say, yes, I do. Uh, it's just historically accurate. That's what it looks like. Now, all of that to say, here's why I read this story. That this isn't quite the virgin birth of, let's say, like an Anakin Skywalker in Star Wars. Right? The Gospels don't, don't say that Jesus' birth was long, long ago in some galaxy far away, but they actually pin it to an actual time in an actual place. It's not some mythological account at all. And next week we're going to look at the reliability of the gospels and how we can actually trust them or at least we should take them very seriously. And so I would submit to you again the question, the better question is this. The question is not whether Jesus was real, but again, whether he is God. That's actually what you and I have to wrestle with. Now, yes, certainly there are some miraculous elements to Jesus's birth story. Absolutely. Um, there are details around it. What's interesting, though, is that none of them are fanatical. And really, all of the things about Jesus, all the miracles he does, all the things that he does, the gospel writers, all, all they ever just say is that this happened, and then this happened, and then that this happened. It is not what you would write if you were trying to create an oppressive account. It's not what, you would not have Jesus the Messiah born in some no-name town that nobody ever goes to or hears about. You would not have Jesus the Messiah who's supposed to save the world, be born to, to, to very poor people that have no, really, nobody knows who they are. You would not have Jesus the Messiah born and kind of like all on its own on some back, like this is not, you would have it be born to aristocrats with a lot of money, with a lot of influence. You would have main big people come. You would not have shepherds come. And I for, for just, to, just to get us in the mindset, like what it would it look like for them? If you, if you think the Messiah would have been born, you would have told who? actors, politicians, athletes, people with social clout. You would not have told shepherds. Now there's nothing wrong with these jobs, but just to kind of understand who Jesus is, it's kind of like if the Messiah was born today, angels were uh, coming to tell people who were garbage men, or people who worked at McDonald's, or a minimum wage job at Walmart. Now again, there's nothing wrong with those jobs. In fact, if you work and move your way up, you can actually get paid pretty well, but you would not assume that this massive news would be people who were unskilled laborers. You would assume people with high influence who are really important. They would be the ones to know. And yet that is not at all what actually happens. And so what I want to do is I want to read one more passage this morning. It'll be in Acts chapter 17. This is why Paul, the Apostle Paul, when he's on one of his missionary jir- journeys, uh, talks about the, rea- the reality that Jesus actually existed to tell people about Jesus. So the last place we'll turn to is Acts chapter 17. Uh, and it's some page 8, 984 of the Black Bibles if you want to lead read along. Some context really quickly. Uh, this is the story of the Apostle Paul who was one of the foundational leaders in the first century early church. And he's visiting Athens. It's a very big, influential city. Think big, beautiful architecture with lots of power, like New York City or Los Angeles. So it's a lot, a lot of commerce. A lot of people are coming and going. Um, it also had a lot of temples, which also brought a lot of people, people on pilgrimages, making sacrifices to the God. There's a lot of commercialization with that stuff too. So it's just people are coming and going. It's a really hot place to be. And, and, and then uh, Petronius, who is also someone who served on the emperor's court in the first century, he actually writes uh, in, in a satile, uh, a, a satile assertion, that it was easier to find a God than a man in Athens. He actually wrote that because there is just stuff everywhere. Undoubtedly, some people are trying to take advantage of this. So they're inviting and in, inventing all these other gods that just to cover all your bases, you need to buy and sacrifice to this God as well while you are here. So Paul's here and he gets asked to speak more about this God that he's talking about, this man named Jesus, by wealthy philosophers in the area. And then we'll pick up the story in verse 16. It says this. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, so he's waiting for some of his other missionary friends to come and join him, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshiped God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show off trying to say? Others replied, He seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he is telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, May we learn more about this new teaching you are presenting? Because what you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians, the foreigners residing there, spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. And then verse 22 says Paul stood in the, mirror, uh, the middle of the Areopagus and said people of Athens i see that you are extremely religious in every respect now he's addressing an ancient culture of athens but for being honest this is also extremely relevant to us today You know, you and I might not seek out various traditional pagan idols and gods as they did, but we worship nonetheless, right? Instead of sacrificing for this deity, for this thing, whether it was for them, rain or fertility or health or wealth or prosperity or whatever it might be, good fortune, we just, we do the same thing, but it looks different, right? We sacrifice for this product. We erect massive billboards and advertisements, inviting people to come to this place, uh, we, spend, we spend our money and our time on things to stay young or to be fulfilled or to have better sex or to improve your business, right? The method is different, but the functions are the same. Now, hear me, there's nothing wrong with trying to improve your life. There's nothing wrong with chasing a dream. There's nothing wrong with any of these things. But the question that we must ask ourselves as we pursue these things to try to better our lot in life is this, is, is what we worship real? Is what we actually give our money and our time to real? Is it worth it. Listen, it is a totally legit question to ask if Jesus was actually real. That's, that's, I mean, everyone should ask that. That's a totally legit question. But we should also ask, is everything else that we are hoping in, are those things actually real, right? That if I get that job or if I get that relationship, do I honestly think I'll be good forever? Now, the older you are, the more life experience you have. You still have wants and desires, but you know, if you were actually to get that thing, it would last a few weeks tops if you're lucky, Right? Uh, do I honestly think I'll never be anxious or self-conscious again if I get more followers right uh, Can things we pursue really satisfy us the way that we want Again not saying goals or desires or wants are bad at all and I'm not or, and I'm also not saying we should just like pre, pray and read our Bible and meditate all day every day I think that would be not be a good idea either but rather to consider what is the ultimate thing that you are after that I'm after and can it deliver what we think it actually Can Can it deliver to us what we think it actually can? Is what we worship real? Because this is what Paul is asking these people, all these people who are coming and going, trying to find something for their life, is it actually real? Because then he says this in verse 23, if we keep reading. He says, for as I was passing through and observing the the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which it was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore what you worship in ignorance this I proclaim to you the God who made the heaven and the earth does not live in shrines made by hands now what's interesting is we actually also have records where people are mentioning altars of gods to unnamed known uh, to unnamed gods and inscriptions of places in this area where Paul is that read unknown gods we actually still have like ancient artifacts that say that this was actually happening And so what was probably happening, though, here is that just to cover our bases, people are just making sure that every God, deity, and thing was happy with them and was in good standing with them so that nothing would go wrong. And so they have unknown structures erected just to make sure that they're covering all of their bases. Then it says this in verse 25, neither is he served by human hands. He's talking about God. He's talking about Jesus. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things for one man he has made in every nationality to live uh, to live over the whole earth and has determined their pro- pro- appointed times and the boundaries of where they live In other words, what Paul is saying here is to be clear, God does not need us. He's not begging us to worship him. He's not missing out if we don't. What he's trying to show us, what we see throughout the New Testament and what we see in the Gospels is that God loves us, God cares for us, and God is inviting us in. Not because we can add to something that he is missing, but simply because he wants to experience grace and mercy and love, that he is inviting us into a relationship with him for our benefit. It's because he is a good and he is a loving God. It is not a mutual relationship where both parties need each other. God does not need us, but he desires us and he gives us grace and forgiveness so that we can experience love and mercy in his kingdom. He's inviting us in. And then it says this in verse 27. It says, he did this. He sent this man named Jesus so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him, he's talking about Jesus, we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring, that we are the offspring of God. Since then, we are God's offspring. We shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone in an image fashioned by human art and imagination, right? Because that's stuff that we've created in our image. This is not something that God has actually created. Verse 30, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. In other words, what Paul is saying here is this man named Jesus is our creator and that he will one day judge everyone and everything. And that we can actually know this God and be reconciled to him, not by trying to appease every God we can think of and never trying to mess up again and trying to do all things right and trying to do nothing wrong. That is not what he's saying, but that we can be reconciled to God by this God-man named Jesus and what he has done. And this is through whom Paul says we can know God. And it's not that this man was like any other prophet or any other self-proclaimed Messiah or one among many, as many of the Athenians were believing that gods were. Instead, he was resurrected from the dead as a sign that there is no one like him. In other words, one of the things that Paul is trying to emphasize to the Athenians is this, is that the real God is knowable. The real God is knowable. And this is the good news of the gospel that Jesus came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, that he's not hiding in secret, that he's not making you take some enlightenment journey, that he's not making you do X, Y, and Z. And if you do it really, really well, then just maybe, just maybe, if God's having a good day, he'll reveal himself to you. Paul's point is that God is not hiding. God's, Paul's point is that God has come in this man named Jesus to offer us grace and forgiveness and mercy. That Paul is saying that Jesus came to reveal who God is to us. This is why he came, so that you and I can know him. And, and that being said, I'm not going to read it, but I do want to point out uh, one more thing uh, this morning, speaking of the birth of Jesus, and that is the genealogy of Jesus. Where, uh, this idea is Jesus actually knowable. Uh, in Matthew chapter 1, uh, Matthew begins his gospel talking about the, it's a very brief, but it is a genealogy of Jesus from verses 1 through 17. And I'm not going to read all of it, but I do want to point out to you, you can read it later if you, if you want, something very, very significant about the genealogy of Jesus. There's a couple of things, but one thing that would have really stuck out, uh, stood out to ancient readers as they were reading this, and that is that in Jesus' genealogy, again, it's very abbreviated, that there are five women Present five women. Now you would expect Mary to be there, his mother, so that makes sense. Not a big deal, but the fact that there are four other women present in the genealogy of Jesus is pretty significant. Now it's not a big deal to us, but in a patriarchal society, everything ran through men, and it's not just <clears throat> that that they only cared about men, but it's also that that the legally inheritance where you're from it was all traced through the man's uh, heritage or the man's lineage, and so to put women and a genealogy in a patriarchal society like Jesus's would have made no sense. Would have made no sense because it wouldn't have given them what they would consider helpful information. It would kind of be like if I were telling you like where I came from and I was like, here's my parents and here's my grandparents and here's my great-grandparents. And if I also threw in like, and here's my aunt and here's my great-great uncle and here's my cousin. And it's like, that's fine, but like that's not relevant to actual lineage. That is how this would have been assumed. Like why are these women there because it doesn't tell us anything. Doesn't, doesn't help us. And honestly, the men would not have even cared. And on, on top of that, not only are five women present in Jesus' genealogy, uh, but also they are not the matriarchs that you might think. It's not Sarah. It's not Rebecca or Leah. It's not even Eve. Instead, he includes Tamar, Rahab, Ruth... And Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. And so not only are these four women, but they are also not even Israelites. So that's significant. Uh, uh, we know that Rahab wasn't because she was a prostitute that were helping the Israelites as they were coming into Jericho. We know Ruth wasn't because she was a Moabite. Uh, we are not told Tamar's ethnicity in the book of Genesis, but uh, Jewish tradition has her as a Syrian proselyte. In other words, a Syrian who has converted to Judaism. And we know Uriah's husband, or hus- her wife Bathsheba, probably wasn't a uh, Israelite because her husband was a, Hittite. And so she probably would have been a Hittite as well. So not only are these women not Israelites, these women also all have sexual past associations with them. Uh, 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 Tamar and uh, uh, Rahab have really negative sexual pasts. Ruth does not. In fact, the the book of Ruth is very fascinating to the character and integrity of Ruth, but she was a Moabite. And Israelites all assumed that the Moabites were really sexually perverse. And of course, you know the story. If you know the story of Bathsheba, Uriah's uh, wife, uh, David sleeps with her, of course, not to her accord or to her decision at all. That was all on David. But you still have this sexual baggage associated to all of them, even if it's not all their fault. And of course, if I were to read you the list and talk through some of the men, they would have their own issues as well. In other words, Jesus' genealogy is a really bad list. I mean, talking about trying to convince people that you should, you would only do the highlights. And there is a lot of lowlights or questionable things in the genealogy of Jesus. And what the genealogy of Jesus also shows us is this, is that Jesus has a real family history. He has a real family history. And not just in the sense that he came from real people, but in the sense that his family lineage is messed up, full of messed up people. That if you want to compare your family to his, his would probably win in terms of what's actually the craziness of what is going on. In fact, Rebecca McLaughlin in her book, again, uh, is Christmas Unbelievable, she puts it this way when she talks about the Christmas story. She says this, there's something very touching about this story of a divine child lying in a manger, herited by angels and hated by rulers, but worshiped by both rich and poor, by fellow Jews and foreigners, by stargazing scholars and uneducated shepherds. It's a lovely yuletide tale for kids. But it's also a story rooted in history. In other words, you could put it this way, that Jesus was a real person from a real place offering real hope to real people. Jesus was a real person from a real place offering real hope to real people. Jesus came to redeem people with real stories dealing with real issues, with sin, with struggle, with family lineages that all sorts have messed up. And Christmas for us is a tangible reminder of God's love and grace for us. That even if the holidays are difficult for you because of all the family, all the things that might've happened, we can still have joy in knowing the reason for all of this is that God came because he cared that we can worship this Jesus when things are going well and when things are going difficult, not because if we have tried really hard and he met us halfway, but because he went the whole way. And so sometimes we gather on Sunday mornings or we gather at these Christmas services and sometimes things are going great and you can sing and you can be joyous and sometimes things are not going well. Things are going really, really hard and sometimes your singing really is more of a prayer that Jesus, would you make yourself real to me? Would you offer this hope to me? Would I feel it in a tangible and real way? See, the good news for us as we celebrate this Christmas season is no matter who you are or where you come from or what you're currently dealing with, it is emphatically clear that God loves you and we know that he loves you because he came. He was a real person from a real place offering real hope to real people. And you and I have to decide whether or not we want to accept the grace that he has given us or continue to go through on our own thinking that these unknown gods can save us when they really can't. Would you pray with me?